chapter 18. The last week, uh, we saw as Paul continued in his second missionary journey, he stopped in Corinth, and there he had uh, an experience with the Jews there in Corinth where they, they were threatening him, they were uh, not pleased with him, but the Lord Jesus came to him and promised protection, that he would physically protect him from harm for his whole ministry there because Jesus had a purpose for the people in Corinth. He had people there who needed to believe the gospel. And so Jesus protected Paul all throughout his time in Corinth. And uh, even when his life was threatened, even when uh, a group attacked him, they did not harm him because Jesus was faithful to keep his promise that Paul would not be harmed by those who were in Corinth. That's where we left off, and today uh, we're going to start in Acts 18, verse 18, continue on through chapter 19, verse 7. We're going to see the end of Paul's second missionary journey and the beginning of Paul's third missionary journey. With that, uh, if you're able, would you please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient word as we read Uh, These words, we need to understand that these are coming with the very authority of Jesus himself. And this is what our Lord wants to speak to us today. So let's listen with that in mind. Starting in verse 18 of Acts 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Syncrie, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined, but on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scripture that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who is to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. 
There were about 12 men in all. This is the word of the Lord, and you may be seated. If you are in Christ, God is not finished with you yet. God is not finished with you yet. Paul says in Philippians 1, 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He says in Romans 8, 29, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. If you are in Christ before you were born, before the foundation of the world, God determined that he was going to make you like Christ. He started that work in you and he has committed himself to finishing that work god is not finished with you yet i know you need to hear that this morning but there might be a couple different reasons why you need to hear that this morning first you need to hear that this morning if you think that god has given up on you He hasn't. God has not abandoned you. God is with you. God is for you. And he is going to stay faithful to keep his promise to make you like Christ. God is not finished with you yet. You also need to hear that this morning. If you don't really want God to change you any more than he already has. Maybe you're kind of content with things the way they are. You don't really want to give up one more thing. You don't really want to change your mind one more time. You're comfortable, and you don't want to be disrupted by more change. Well, you too need to hear this morning, God is not finished with you yet either. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, this passage shows that God wants to take you further. God wants you to take your next step in your discipleship journey. Maybe you've walked with the Lord for a while. Uh, You've been well taught the scriptures. You know the Bible. You're passionate about Jesus. God wants you to take your next step. Maybe you're relatively new to walking with the Lord. You believe the gospel, you want to follow Jesus, but there's still a lot that you don't know, don't understand. God wants you to take your next step too. And maybe you've never turned from your sin and turned to follow Jesus as Lord. You're here today, you want to be in church, you want to tune into a live stream, you know about Jesus, but you've never actually given your life to Jesus. Well, God wants you to take your first step in your discipleship journey. Now, I I may not know where exactly every single person hearing me right now is in their discipleship 
journey, but I, I can tell you this, th- there's more discipleship needed. Whatever that next step is, even if that means you need to become a disciple of Jesus for the first time, there's more discipleship ahead. And today in Acts 18 and 19, we'll see this across three scenes. First, in chapter 18, verses 18 through 23, we'll see a sent one returns. Then in chapter 18, verses 24 through 28, we'll see a teacher is taught. And then finally, in chapter 19, verses 1 through 7, we'll see Baptists are baptized. All right, well, let's start with scene one. A sent one returns. So in verse 18, Luke tells us that Paul left Corinth and he decides to set sail for Syria. So Syria was where the church in Antioch was located. That was his sending church, the one that sent him off onto this journey. So when he says that he set sail for Syria, Paul is now beginning the very last leg of his second missionary journey. The end is in sight. And we'll put up a a map on the screen so that you can follow along and see this. He started over there in the east in Antioch. He's made his way west uh, all the way up into Macedonia and then down into Achaia. And that's where he is right now, Corinth. He's leaving Corinth and he's going to make his way east back ultimately to Antioch. He took Priscilla and Aquila with him. You might remember that Paul met Priscilla and Aquila in Corinth, and apparently he decided that they would be valuable ministry partners on the rest of this journey, so they came with him. Uh, Right after Corinth, they went not far, uh, right uh, to the neighboring town of Syncrie. And uh, Luke tells us that at Syncrie, in verse 18, Paul cut his hair, for he was under a vow. Now, you can read more about the type of vow uh, Paul probably took in Numbers 6. Uh, for, all, for our purposes today, I'll just kind of give you the short version of what I think Luke is telling us uh, about this vow that Paul made. So, you can remember back in Acts 18 and, and uh, in the verses we looked at last week, Paul's in Corinth, and Jesus had promised to physically protect Paul while he ministered in Corinth. So it may have been that Paul made a vow, which included not cutting his hair. So, you know, Jesus, I will not cut my hair as long as you are keeping your promise. It's a way for him to be reminded to trust in Jesus uh, in a way that, uh, for instance, like fasting is a, an abstinence from food that is a reminder of a spiritual purpose. Abstaining from cutting hair or, or sometimes abstaining from uh, drinking alcohol. These were ways to help remember and to stay uh, trusting in a promise of Jesus. So it may have been that Paul made that vow uh, that he was uh, trusting in Jesus. And and as a reminder, he refrained from cutting his hair. And then when he left Corinth and arrived at Syncrie, he cut his hair, marking the end of that vow and marking the completion of Jesus' faithfulness to keep him safe. For the entire duration of his time in Corinth, all the way until the day he left Corinth and went to Syncria. Well, whatever the reason was, Luke thought you and I needed to know Paul cut his hair. So there you go. From there, they went on to to Ephesus. You can see they they sailed uh, across over to Ephesus. 
Ephesus was the capital city of the Roman province of Asia. You might remember at the beginning of this second missionary journey, Paul uh, and his companions tried to go to Asia, and the Holy Spirit stopped them. He wouldn't let them, but now uh, the Holy Spirit has allowed them to go to Asia, to minister in Ephesus. And uh, when he did, Paul followed his typical pattern. Uh, You can see that in verse 19. He went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews as he had a habit of doing. And it went so well that the people wanted him to stay longer. They asked him to stay, but for whatever reason, Paul couldn't stay at that time. But he did leave Priscilla and Aquila there in Ephesus to continue on the ministry. And he promised that if the Lord would allow, Paul would return to Ephesus to continue the ministry himself. And we'll see his return uh, at the beginning of chapter 19 here in a moment. So then Paul sails away from Ephesus and goes all the way across the Mediterranean to the port city of Caesarea. And in verse 22, Luke tells us that Paul went up and greeted the church. He, He went up and greeted the church. Well, where did he go up to? What is this the church that he greeted Uh, most likely uh, this is jerusalem he went up to jerusalem and he greeted the apostles that was the the home base of the apostles uh, was jerusalem but ultimately paul made it home to his final destination of antioch the church in syria that had sent him on this journey But you'll notice in verses 22 and 23, Luke barely finishes telling us about the end of Paul's second missionary journey before Paul is off again on his third missionary journey. In verse 23, look at that. After spending some time there in Antioch, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So, Paul, this is now the third time that the church in Antioch has sent Paul off on a missionary journey. And he goes first through the region of Galatia and Phrygia. Now, most likely, this is the region of southern Galatia down there where you see Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and Derbe. Um, These were all places that Paul had visited on his first missionary journey. He went there and he planted churches. And on that same journey, on his way back home, he went back through that region in order to strengthen the souls of the disciples, Luke tells us in Acts 14, 22. Then Paul visited this region of Galatia and Phrygia on his second missionary journey as well in Acts 16, 5. Luke tells us that the churches were strengthened in the faith. And so now he's going back again on his third missionary journey with the goal of strengthening all the disciples. So three times Luke tells us that Paul went back to this region to strengthen the churches that he had initially planted when he did his first evangelistic ministry there. And and so what I hope you see in this passage is that the theme of this section is returning. Paul promises to return to Ephesus Paul returns to Jerusalem, he returns to Antioch, he returns to Galatia and Phrygia for a third time. Paul goes back where he's already been. And we can learn two important lessons from Paul's example of returning. 
first, Jesus wants disciple makers who care about the entire journey of discipleship, not just conversion. Jesus wants disciple makers who care about a disciple's whole discipleship journey, not just their conversion. Why would Paul go back three times to the region of Galatia and Phrygia? Because evangelism is not the whole mission of the church. Evangelism is not the whole mission of the church. The mission that Jesus gave the church is to make disciples. And evangelism is just the first step of the process of making disciples. Our mission is to go out with the gospel, to bring disciples in to the local church, and then as a church to grow up as a body into our head who is Christ. We go out, we bring in, and we grow up. So Paul's goal was not to go out, get people to make a decision for Jesus, and then leave and never see them again. He went back again and again and again to strengthen the churches because Paul was committed to total discipleship. And likewise, that's the heart that Jesus wants to form in us as disciple makers. He wants to form in us a heart that is concerned not just with a person's conversion, but with their whole journey of discipleship. So when we look at a person who does not know Jesus, our heart should be burdened for them. We should want them to hear the gospel so that they can believe and become a disciple of Jesus so that they can know him. But we should want so much more for them than just that. We should want them not just to make one decision one time. We should want them to enter into a life of following Jesus and to experience the fullness of everything that he has for us who follow him. Uh, this is why uh, whenever we were doing power-up clubs, we were so insistent on not just going out and doing the ministry, but inviting them to come back to our church, whether that was the, the first week on the, the Friday night or the second week on the Sunday. The, the goal was to get them to come back because we're not just interested in going out, sharing the gospel, helping them make a decision, and then never seeing them again. We want more for them than just that. We want people to hear the gospel, believe in Jesus, and then we are concerned about their whole discipleship journey from beginning to end. We want to invite people into a life of following Jesus and all that that entails. So when we look at a person who doesn't know Jesus, that should be our burden for them to, to, to not just make one decision, but to have a life of following Jesus. And then when we look at a person who does know Jesus, we should be burdened for them as well. We shouldn't just think, oh, well, they're saved. They're, you know, they're fine. They're safe. They'll figure it out. No. We should have a strong desire, a burden for them too. We, we should want them to grow, to grow in their understanding, grow in their faith in the gospel, grow in believing the truths of scripture, grow in bearing the fruit of the spirit. Jesus wants disciple makers who care about a person's entire journey of discipleship, not just their conversion. Well, the second thing we can learn from Paul's example is that Jesus wants disciple makers who are accountable to a local church. He wants disciple makers who are accountable to a local church. Why did Paul return to Antioch? Why did he return to Jerusalem? And 
even if he did, why is Luke telling us about it? I mean, Luke hardly tells us anything other than it happened. Why does he feel the need to make sure that we know this little detail on the itinerary? Because Luke wants us to see that Paul was accountable. Paul was accountable. He was accountable to the rest of the apostles in Jerusalem. And he was accountable specifically to the local church that sent him on his missionary journey. Jesus has established the local church as the venue in which discipleship is carried out. Disciples need this. Uh, When I commit myself to being a member of this church, I am entrusting the watch and care of my discipleship journey to you. You supervise my discipleship journey. I I need to not just follow Jesus by myself. I need you to, as a church, to care for me and to be entrusted with my journey of following Jesus. We're not trying to follow Jesus as individuals alone who happen to get together once a week. We're following Jesus together as a church. But not only do disciples need the local church as the venue in which discipleship takes place, disciple makers also need the local church. As a disciple maker, I am trying to get people not to be my disciples, but disciples of Jesus. Well, who is going to hold me accountable to make sure that as I'm making disciples, I'm not making disciples of me, I'm making disciples of Jesus? Who can supervise my disciple making? You, church. A local church holds disciple makers accountable to ensure that we stay faithful to our mission of making disciples of Jesus. Jesus wants disciple makers who are accountable to a local church. And that's why we see Paul, the sent one, return to Antioch. Well, that takes us to our next scene. A teacher is taught. A teacher is taught. So in verse 24, we're introduced to a Jew named Apollos. He's from Alexandria, which was in Egypt, and it was a city known for great education. There was this world-famous library there in Alexandria. We're told Apollos was an eloquent man. He had a gift, a a way with words, and he was competent in the scriptures. Uh, He was a diligent student of the Jewish scriptures. Verse 25 says he had also been instructed in the way of the Lord. So he knew about Jesus. The gospel had come to him. Uh, He had been taught how the scriptures, which he knew so well and was instructed in, ultimately revealed that Jesus is the Christ. Uh, Luke says that Apollos was fervent in spirit. And uh, just a a little bit of a a sidebar about that phrase. In your Bible, you might have a footnote that says, That it could be translated either he's fervent in spirit with a little s, like his human spirit, or fervent in the spirit, as in the the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And um, regardless of how you translate it, either way, there's two things that are really clear. One, that's what's clear is when Apollos talked about Jesus, he was passionate. He had fervor and passion in how he talked about Jesus. And second, even if it doesn't mean fervent in the spirit, 
um, it does seem from the rest of the context that Apollos had received the Holy Spirit. So first, we'll see in the church that the uh, the church in Ephesus is going to encourage him to go on to further ministry and do this ministry in Achaia. If Apollos had not possessed the Holy Spirit, uh, they would not have been so enthusiastic in supporting him to be sent out to do further ministry. Uh, but furthermore, we can learn a lot about how to interpret the story by showing or by by looking at how Luke tells these two stories, this one and then the one in, in the first part of 19, and then he tells them together. He puts them together in Acts, um, and in so doing invites us to, to compare and contrast. So when you have the story of Apollos, and then you have the story of the, the 12 disciples in Ephesus that we've, we've already read and we'll look at in detail, the stories are very similar. Both are stories of people who need to move beyond John's baptism. So in that sense, they're very similar. But as Luke tells the stories, what he describes as their need, their specific need, is very different. We'll see in chapter 19 that according to Luke, the disciples in Acts 19, 1-7 needed to believe and be baptized and receive the Holy Spirit. They needed to become Christians, in other words. What Luke tells us that Apollos needed was to be taught more accurately. Whereas the disciples that we'll see in a moment had a, a spiritual need to become Christians, Apollos needed some more education. He, he, his was a theological need. And so as Luke tells these stories, it seems that uh, from this, Apollos already had the Holy Spirit. But in any case, he was passionate. He had the Holy Spirit. He was either fervent in spirit or fervent in the spirit. Um, it, it really uh, doesn't matter once you boil all that down. But Apollos was not just passionate in his teaching. Verse 25 also tells us that he was accurate. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Apollos was faithful. He was correct in his teaching as he taught the truth about Jesus. But he was missing something. He only knew the baptism of John. He only knew John's baptism. So John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus, and his baptism even was a baptism of preparation. Uh, he called the people to repent in order that they might prepare their hearts for the coming of the Messiah. A and because his baptism was meant to prepare people for Jesus, once Jesus came, John's baptism had fulfilled its purpose, and uh, it was no longer needed. Given Apollos's uh, knowledge of Jesus, he probably understood that the baptism of Jesus, or excuse me, the baptism of John was meant to point to Jesus, and therefore it wasn't necessary anymore. But Luke says that Apollos knew only the baptism of John. So it seems that while he, he knew about John's baptism, since he only knew about that, apparently he did not know about Christian baptism. The baptism that Jesus commands in Matthew 28, verse 19, when he says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So Apollos knew John's baptism of preparation, but he needed to learn that Jesus also commands his disciples to be baptized. Apollos, the teacher, 
needed to be taught. Well, so then in verse 26, we see Apollos is speaking boldly in the synagogue. Here's this gifted, knowledgeable, passionate speaker boldly proclaiming Jesus from Scripture in the synagogue. But then Priscilla and Aquila show up to the synagogue. Remember, Paul had left them in Ephesus as he was heading back to Antioch. And Priscilla and Aquila heard Apollos, and they realize he's missing something. He's teaching, he's bold, he's gifted, he's mostly accurate, but he's missing something. Uh, They took him aside then. Notice that. Priscilla and Aquila took Apollos aside. They did not publicly rebuke him. They addressed the issue with Apollos privately, and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. So again, Apollos was not teaching inaccurately. He was not a heretic. Luke said he taught accurately. But he needed to be taught more accurately. However accurate he may have been, however smart he may have been, however well he had been instructed, he still had more to learn. And so Apollos received more discipleship from Priscilla and Aquila. And this discipleship that Apollos received there in Ephesus equipped him for further ministry. In, Luke, or in, um, in verse 27, Luke tells us that Apollos wished to cross to Achaia. That's where Athens and Corinth were located. And Luke says the believers there in Ephesus encouraged him to go do that. Uh, they encouraged him and they wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. Uh, now surely this letter would have included um, something from Priscilla and Aquila, which makes a lot of sense because Priscilla and Aquila had come from Corinth and Achaia. And so their um, you know, stamp of approval on Apollos would have given a lot of credibility to him as he came to Achaia and to Corinth specifically. So Apollos went to Achaia and were told that he was greatly used of the Lord there. Look at verses 27 and 28. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So Apollos was a great help to the believers there in Achaia. In particular, he was effective in debating the Jews in public, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, Paul goes on to write about Apollos' effective ministry when he writes in 1 Corinthians. Uh, he describes Apollos as his fellow worker in 1 Corinthians 3.9. God used Paul to do the initial planting of the gospel, uh, Paul says. But Apollos came along and God used him to do the watering of the seeds of the gospel in, in 1 Corinthians 3.6. And so what we can see is that more discipleship equipped Apollos for more ministry. No Christian ever moves beyond being taught. No Christian ever moves beyond being taught. No matter how gifted you are, how smart you are, how well educated you are, how passionate you are, how many years of experience you have, you never move beyond being taught. Proverbs 19.20 says, listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future and then in proverbs 19 27 it says cease to hear instruction my son 
and you will stray from the words of knowledge. Another word for disciple even is learner. Following Jesus as his disciple means always being teachable. That's why in our mission statement as a church, we don't just say we exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ. We say we exist to be and make disciples of Jesus Christ. Because as we make disciples, it's not as though we've graduated from disciple to disciple maker. We never arrive in the Christian life. Even as we make disciples, we ourselves are disciples following Jesus, always growing, always learning. And what we see in this text is that further discipleship equips us for further ministry. I mean, we can choose to just kind of stay where we're at, be comfortable, content, complacent, and stay limited with the ministry that we're able to do. Or we can receive more instruction. We can receive more equipping. We can grow and how we're able to serve people. There's a, uh, a church in Colorado, Storyline Fellowship, and they just started a, uh, a theological uh, institute for their church members there. And a friend of mine is uh, a member of the church there, and she, she wrote how um, in her small group on this first night, there was a 72-year-old woman who came to start this, this theological training program. And uh, as they were introducing themselves, the, the woman said, I, I don't have many years left, but I want to use all of them growing to know more about this God that I follow. We all can grow in our equipping, in our ability to serve people. We want to continue to be equipped and, and know more about this God and know more about how we can serve people to know him better. Uh, and this is why we, uh, we want to encourage all of us to participate in things like uh, the equip class for teachers uh, that's going to continue next week. Uh, the, the biblical counseling and discipleship conference that I shared with you before in Granbury. We want all of us to continue to be further equipped so that we can be further deployed in ministry to help more people know Jesus and follow Jesus and trust in Jesus. No Christian ever moves beyond being taught. Not even the gifted, passionate, educated teacher, Apollos. Well, that brings us to our last scene then. We, we've seen a sent one return. We've seen a teacher taught. And finally, in this last scene, we see Baptists are baptized. Baptists are baptized. So, Apollos leaves Ephesus and goes to Corinth. While Apollos is in Corinth, Paul comes to Ephesus. And when Paul comes to Ephesus, he meets 12 disciples. But whose disciples were they? Look at verses 2 and 3. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. 
And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. So Paul asks if they've received the Holy Spirit, and they're surprised that he would ask this. It turns out they're disciples of John the Baptist. That's why I call them Baptists. And so because they're disciples of John, when they say we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit, we should probably not take that to mean that they literally didn't know that the Holy Spirit existed. Um, uh, If they're disciples of John, a key part of John's message was about the Holy Spirit. Turn with me to Luke chapter 3 and verse 16. As John is baptizing and he's doing this ministry of preparation, in Luke chapter 3, verse 16, Luke tells us, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And then catch this, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So the Holy Spirit was a key part of John's message to his disciples. So probably what we should understand that these 12 disciples of John were saying is that we had not heard that the Holy Spirit is here, that he has come. Well, So then Paul asks them, into what then were you baptized? Well, so why is that, why is that the question he asks? Why is it that Paul hears they haven't received the Holy Spirit? And he asks them about baptism. Well, in Acts, one of the things we see is that baptism and receiving the Holy Spirit are both really closely tied to conversion. So if they haven't received the Holy Spirit, then they probably haven't received Christian baptism. And if they haven't received the Holy Spirit or Christian baptism, then they're probably not Christians. And sure enough, they were baptized into John's baptism, a baptism of preparation for believing in Jesus. So Paul explains to them then what John's baptism was really all about in verse 4. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who is to come after him. That is Jesus. So Paul explains John's baptism was never meant to be an end in itself. It was pointing people to Jesus, that they would believe in him. So if you were baptized into John's baptism and you didn't believe in Jesus, it showed that you didn't really understand what the purpose of John's baptism was to begin with. So these 12 needed to believe in Jesus. They knew exactly what they needed to do when when they heard Paul. Look at verse 5. On hearing this, They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They believed in Jesus and they professed their faith in Jesus through Christian baptism. Then look at verse 6. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Because they didn't just need to be baptized with water. They needed to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. 
And Paul will actually write to the Christians in Ephesus, um, surely to, to more than just these 12, but no doubt including these, in Ephesians 1 and chapter 13. You can turn with me there as he writes in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13. He says to the Ephesians, in him, that is in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, which for these 12 is this moment, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So when these 12 Ephesians heard the gospel, they believed in Jesus and then they were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now, before we move on, there's a couple of unique details about the story that we need to just address. Uh, so here, the Holy Spirit's given through the laying on of the hands of the Apostle Paul. Uh, we saw something similar to that in Acts 8, when the Apostles Peter and John laid their hands on the believers who were Samaritans, the first Samaritan believers, and they received the Holy Spirit. Here also, these believers, when they received the Holy Spirit, they spoke in tongues and prophesied, which was this outward demonstrable sign that the Holy Spirit had really uh, come and indwelled them. And, and these things happened during certain moments in the early days of the church. But we should not understand from this that, they're, that it's supposed to happen exactly this way and be the normal Christian experience from here on out. Nowhere in the New Testament are we taught that we should expect that this is how things go. Uh, these were unique. Uh, situ this was a unique situation. It was a unique time in church history. And so the coming of the Holy Spirit uh, came in a unique way for unique purposes. And we've already seen that happen in Acts. There were special purposes for some of these unique ways that the Holy Spirit uh, came on people. Sometimes the Holy Spirit would come on a person through the laying on of hands of an apostle. And it was a way of demonstrating the legitimacy of their receiving the Holy Spirit because they had received it through one of the apostles of Jesus. Uh, there was also times when people who received the Holy Spirit would speak in tongues or prophesy to make it outwardly undeniable that they really did spiritually receive the Holy Spirit. So what was the purpose in this case? Well, remember, these people were in spiritual confusion. I mean, were they disciples? Had they believed? They didn't have the Holy Spirit. They hadn't been baptized with Christian baptism. They were in the state of spiritual confusion, and they needed assurance. It seems that the reason why there was the laying on of hands of the apostle and the clear outward signs of speaking in tongues and prophesy was to diffuse this confusion and make it super clear they received the Holy Spirit. So, you could say, Ephesians, how do you know that you received the Holy Spirit? <laughs> because an apostle of Jesus Christ laid his hands on me, and I started speaking in tongues and prophesying. That's how I know. I am certain that the Holy Spirit really did come to me, and their spiritual confusion was dissipated. These Baptists were baptized. These disciples of Jesus started following, or excuse me, these disciples of John started following Jesus and became his disciples so what can we learn from this 
you can be prepared to be a disciple of Jesus without actually becoming a disciple of Jesus. You can be prepared to be a disciple of Jesus without actually becoming a disciple of Jesus. Imagine that you're getting on a plane. You uh, get to your aisle seat and you put your suitcase up in the overhead compartment and you notice that the person in the seat next to you is wearing a jumpsuit and a helmet and goggles and a parachute. Well, your first thought is, what does this guy know about this plane that I don't know? But then you ask him, oh, what? why are you uh, dressed like that? And he says, oh, I'm a skydiver. Oh, wow. Well, how many dives have you taken? None. Uh, okay, so if you've never actually dived, what do you mean that you're a skydiver? Well, I mean, I've got the jump chute, I've got my parachute, I've got helmet, goggles. I took a six-week course on how to skydive. Yeah, but have you ever dived out of a plane? No. I, I don't think you're a skydiver. Well, what are you talking about? I come from three generations of skydivers. My daddy told me when I was eight years old, he said, do you want to be a skydiver? And I said yes. And he gave me my first parachute, and he wrote my name on it, and he put the date that he gave me the parachute, and he declared, you are a skydiver. I mean, look, I'm on an airplane right now. I get on an airplane every single week. Who are you to tell me that I'm not a skydiver? So you ask, well, what are you relying on to get you to the ground? Yourself? Your seat? This plane? If you've never actually stepped out, and relied on the parachute to get you safely to the ground. You have never become a skydiver. Well, what are you talking about? I trust this parachute every single day. I put it on every day and I trust it. How can you say that I don't trust this parachute? Because you're inside the plane and not outside the plane. You can be prepared to be a skydiver without actually ever becoming a skydiver. And you can be prepared to become a disciple of Jesus without ever actually becoming a disciple of Jesus. You can look the part. You can have all the training in the world. You can come from three generations of Christians. Someone may have asked you, do you want to become a Christian, son? Yes, I do. And he put your wrote your name down in your first Bible and put a date on it. And he says, you are a Christian. You may go to church every week. But what are you relying on to make you right with God? Yourself? Your works? Your church attendance? If you've never actually stepped out and trusted Jesus and entered into the exhilarating life of following him, you're not a Christian. You may say to me, but I believe in Jesus. And I would ask, well, what is the evidence that you believe in Jesus? Because when a person trusts in Jesus, they receive the Holy Spirit. That's what happens uh, here in the chapter, the 19th chapter of Acts. 
the Ephesian 12, they receive the Holy Spirit when they believe in Jesus. And when that same Holy Spirit comes into the heart of anyone who trusts in Jesus, that Holy Spirit produces fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The evidence of whether or not you're trusting in a parachute is clear. Are you inside the plane or are you outside of the plane? Well, the evidence of whether or not you're trusting in Jesus is clear too. Are you living a life for yourself? Or is the Holy Spirit producing fruit in your life? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. The 12 in Ephesus were prepared. They just needed someone to tell them to believe in Jesus. If you are prepared to be a disciple, but you've never actually become a disciple of Jesus, let me be that someone to encourage you to believe in Jesus today. Stop relying on yourself. Stop relying on anything less than Jesus. Place your full confidence in him to make you right with God. And step out in faith to the exhilarating life of following him. What is the next step that you need to take on your discipleship journey? Maybe you are a mature believer, well-taught, well-instructed, knowledgeable, passionate, but you've grown complacent, and you need to take a next step of further equipping, further discipleship, further faith in the gospel of Jesus. Maybe you're a new believer, and you need to go get someone who is further along to, to teach you some of those things that they know, to teach you uh, how to trust in Jesus, how what faith in the gospel looks like in the particular struggles and difficulties of life. Maybe you're prepared to be a disciple, and the step you need to take is to become a disciple of Jesus for the first time and place your trust fully in Jesus. Whatever it is, it is the grace of God that you would hear his word today and that you would hear that God is not finished with you yet God not only calls you to take a next step God gives grace and power to enable you to take your next step so what are you waiting for trust in Jesus for whatever that next step is let's pray together